0: Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, Foreign Agents with Elliot Higgins. So, Elliot, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I guess we'll start, um, for anyone that hasn't read the book uh, you put out, by the way, I think it's a really nice summary of, of the story and we'll touch upon many things in that work, um, but also try and get some other aspects for people with more specific interests out there. Let's start with your, I guess, is it origin story? They have that in like super- I guess it'd be that. Yeah. <laughs> also supervillain films, so but either way, let's let's start there. You started coming to public attention through the Brown Moses blog. And I was certainly following your work at the time. And the way you work is very detail centered and detailed orientated. You always had the feeling of someone who just got lost in the projects they were engaged with. So I was really interested in how that all came about, how you got interested in doing sleuthing.
1: Yeah, it, it really started off. I, mean, I, I was someone who spent a lot of time on the internet. So I was on various forums and message boards, but I'd, I'd always had an interest in uh, kind of global politics, in particular, kind of the US. And, um, you know, my kind of teenage years were book ended by the first war in Iraq and the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And that kind of had given me a keen interest in those kind of topics. And, you know, as someone who was, uh, as a younger person, I read, you know, Noam Chomsky and Seymour Hersh and John Pilger and all these people who kind of hate me now. And... I spent a lot of time on the Guardian Middle East Life blog, and there, during the Arab Spring in 2011, there was a lot of discussion and debate and stuff being shared. That I was very frustrated that there was a lot of videos and photographs coming from these countries that were being ignored, both by the mainstream media and also being used by conspiracy theorists to fuel whatever kind of CIA imaginations they had about what was happening in places like Libya. So I, you know, I guess in a desire to win arguments on the internet. I started looking at these videos and trying to figure out, you know, where were they filmed? And I stumbled into what we now call geolocation, and we didn't even have the word geolocation for it there, because it was so early in that open-source investigation community that we hadn't kind of made up the words to describe what we were doing. And there were so few of us who were involved with that, and it was all about discovery and figuring out what we could do with this stuff, and it was organized around um, there was a Google Plus page that You know, people would kind of discuss stuff on, and I, after you know doing that for several months, I thought, well, I you know the Guardian Middle East live blog and Twitter isn't really giving me the space I need to write things down, so I started a a Blogspot blog, and I use like the second default template, and I just used the online pseudonym (laughs) I'd been using. I put no effort into it at all. Um, and that, alongside the UK phone hacking scandal, were just something I wrote down thoughts on. But I just got more and more into the weeds of the analysis of videos. First, things like geolocation. Like my early posts on the Brown Roses blog are pretty terrible. I mean, a lot of them are just lists of interesting videos from Syria with no context. But then I started thinking, well, you know, what what weapons did like the rebels have in Syria? And I couldn't find any articles about it. And I had all these videos of them running around with various weapons, and some of them were. Weird. What that really stuck in my mind is they made a um, air pressure based of cocktail mortar. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a, a kind of classic of the genre. And there were all these kind of catapults and trebuchets they're building and all this yep. weird stuff, but also more standard weaponry. And so I, I was kind of blogging about this, and I would get the occasional email from people who from all kinds of different backgrounds, and some were like expert works in arms and munitions, and worked for places like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, and they. Kind of discussed it with me, and then I got invited to a, a Facebook group where there were a bunch of people trying to like ID arms and munitions. And from there, um, I trained myself both through using online resources and you know talking to these people with more expertise on identifying weapons. And I was really the only person who every day looked at the videos and photographs coming from Syria because I so that meant that I was the first person to come across you know stuff like cluster munitions, for example, which was a great interest in the human rights community. Barrel bombs, which were quite a mystery early on because they they just looked like trash bins that'd be pushed over. But there was this pattern of use that I was tracking through the conflict as they became more sophisticated and crystallized around a specific design. So all of that was just something I was really doing through 2012, building up this small but specialized audience. And then in 2013, I had this. collection of videos I'd come across coming from, in particular, the south of Syria, close to the border, where there were all these opposition groups getting these new weapons I'd never seen before. And after identifying them, I realized they all had a link to the former Yugoslavia. And I took that to um, CJ Chivers, who's working at the New York Times, had been following my work for a while, said, do you think this could be something? And after a few weeks, that was uh, front page on the New York Times, the first actual evidence of smuggling operations to uh, the rebels by Saudi Arabia, Arabia feud Jordan. Um, yep. So that then gave me like a much, much bigger profile at the start of 2013. And that's when I was seeing more and more allegations of the use of chemical weapons and started digging into that and learning as much as I could about chemical weapons.
0: So you certainly, it's obviously listening to you speak about this and uh, seeing you, particularly you know, a few years ago, perpetually online, you have the inclination towards this. Uh, but i guess the other branch of that is the time so when you were starting out you had a full-time job right so how ha- and how did you how did that happen
1: so how did you well, start the time to do this technically it was a full-time job so basically my the <laughs> company i was working for um had the government contract it to house um asylum seekers whilst they were waiting to get their status so i was doing all the admin for that so i was making sure bills were paid. that i would call them up to tell them they're being picked up from by a taxi to take them to another house and um yeah it was, it was just loads of admin but it was also crucial to you know the background of how things were being operated there but the problem our company had is whilst so we lost this contract and had to move a bunch of people out of these houses but a small percentage stayed and refused to move and got lawyers involved so i was kind of stuck in an office like literally an empty office by myself for weeks um and i get into work quite early i'd be like turning up at seven thirty. I got into this habit to, based, based on the Guardian live blog, you had a, a lot of the kind of pro-Gaddafi, you know, anti-NATO, anti-Western science, and they were really annoyed with me because I kept on coming along with, like, links and videos to stuff that they didn't like seeing. And I knew that annoyed them, so I made sure that before the Guardian live blog was open, the comments were open. I always, always prepare a post to the second it opened, I posted it in there, just <laughs> to annoy them. But it also meant, because it was like a summary of all the other links that the Guardian live blog had missed I became a presence there and uh like I, I spoke to like the Guardian live blog moderators and they said oh yeah we you know <laughs> we remember you but also I think they remember that I was one of the few people bringing like good evidence and arguments to back up what I was saying rather than just opinion um and that really I think because I had that spare time at work because I didn't have much to do gave me the opportunity to do all that stuff and figure out your location and yeah, if it wasn't for that, there probably wouldn't be a balling Cat or anything. So, so it makes you feel less guilty for <laughs> actually a job.
0: So it's interesting as well because I mean that sounds it's like this idea of you, you found this niche of something you enjoyed doing and a format in which fitting you with your life and that could give you that feedback. As you mentioned, sometimes it's basically you know he's like oh it's like a game, isn't it? You win. Or like you have, you chase that feeling of finding things and linking things together. Um, but over time, that niche, so that niche there seemed to be obviously t- fighting back to a specific group of people in a specific forum. But over time, it seems that you'll the type of work you were doing allowed you to sort of start filling a much broader niche than that, didn't it? Not just in terms of the forum, but in terms of the broader news cycle, and also, I guess, stuff that wasn't being picked up. By mainstream journalists because it wasn't really their sort of standard practices you were starting to bring information that was available out there somewhere that just haven't been found yet is that right
1: yeah i i realized um quite early on that the way social media was being used in particular youtube facebook and twitter by groups on the position side in syria was fairly systematic they generally had a youtube channel a facebook account um, often a Twitter account, and you could catalog all of those. And because there wasn't this open internet in these areas, because of the restrictions on the bandwidth and that sometimes it had to smuggle stuff across the border in USB sticks, you generally only had kind of centralized nodes in those communities and they would be based around like media centers and local coordination committees, armed groups and some of the individual special accounts. There's one account that used to do humorous videos about the conflict and it just got darker and darker as time went on. But by cataloging that, I could then every day go through every single one of those channels and have a constant stream of videos coming from Syria that often you know, 10 people had looked at and contained stuff that just wasn't being seen by mainstream journalists. They had very little access on the ground and they hadn't yet learned the value of using this open source material. Nor really did they know how to verify or check it or understand it. So I just became, you know, quite obsessed with that process of every day looking through the videos, quickly scanning through them and seeing if there was anything that was unusual. I mean, there'd be lots of things like the aftermath of bombings or aircraft in the sky. But then you'd come across something weird like um like the spring twenty thirteen sound attacks when you had these weird gas grenade drops from the helicopters oh, yeah. in um breeze blocks, you know, cinder blocks and Those kind of things I found really interesting because they weren't really getting that much attention still from the mainstream press. And there was this low level of chemical weapon use all the way through 2013, really from the end of 2012. And I think that really then ended up with what we saw in August 2013 with the massive Damascus sound attacks. But if you actually, because I was looking at these videos every single day, I recognized weapons that were being used, like the um, rockets... They were called the volcanoes, um, yeah. used in the August 21st, 2013 attacks. I had seen videos going back to late 2012, and they were clearly the same chemical rockets. I mean, there's one video I remember from December in 2012. It barely has any context around it, but it's one of these rockets stuck out the ground with black liquid and smoke, or well, whatever the hell it is, rising from the crater. But that was just missed. This stuff was happening... But no one was seeing this stuff and I sometimes do wonder if the Syrian government thought they could get away with doing this because this stuff was happening, no one was doing any reporting about it, there was stuff that was emerging about it but the world really didn't take any you know, notice of it because it wasn't able to verify it. You know, It's, it's important to verify things but sometimes it meant that it created I think a space for bad actors to operate. Yeah
0: and it's interesting to see how you'd started compiling information sources and curating them, I guess, and transmitting curated lists of, of information and stuff you'd found. And but then as time goes on, I think like anything, as you look at something more and more, you start to see linkages that people don't necessarily see. They're already looking at that day in, day out. And so at some point you start making this move, trying to understand things and build linkages between different sources and look for patterns. And of course that, I guess, comes to... Ahead in your, so your initial thing you came to uh, public attention for, was it work on phone hacking? That was one of the earliest ones you, you did. Yeah. Uh, that's probably understood. And then of course, after that, we moved to the like, GIF 2013, and that's where you move, I guess, beyond creating. And actually you start becoming part of processes of actually understanding things, often in a space before there's official positions or intelligence reports coming out from the states so did you want to talk a little bit about how that gutter incident and your responses to it were part of that transformation of, of a and, view and, and the emergence of belling
1: yeah so at, at that point um there was still very little engagement with open source investigation i was still probably the only person doing it regularly um especially around syria but I was part of various kind of small communities and groups that discussed things like, you know, identifying weapons. And that morning, I woke up on August 21st, and I got up quite early because I was getting my young. Um, daughter off to nursery that morning. So I was up at like six o'clock in the morning. So I immediately started saying, like, seeing these planes and images coming through. And I was kind of, you know, getting the porridge ready and, you know, at the same time downloading and copying as many videos as I could of what was happening, trying to
2: get a sense of what was happening. Scenes of horror in the rebel held suburbs of Damascus. Scores of videos posted on the internet show something terrible has happened here. The footage cannot be verified but experts have told the BBC that these appear to be symptoms of poisoning by chemical agents. The Syrian government and opposition fighters both blame the other for whatever it was that happened here. There's no definitive evidence that this was a chemical attack. UN inspectors are currently in Damascus with the means to find out. But they have a limited mandate. The UN Security Council held an emergency meeting late last night. Diplomatic tensions meant it stopped short of demanding an investigation by its team. If this is found to have been a chemical attack, it's likely to have consequences for the future of Syria's war.
1: I could see straight away this was not like any other attack we'd seen. There were so many videos of the casualties, like really terrific videos. But and then the videos of the munitions started to appear and I was like, I've seen these before and I did I'm, sh- I'm sure I've seen these and I saw I had a I have these YouTube playlists on my um, YouTube channel that I've got loads of videos come kind of sorted by order and one of them was unidentified munitions that I just couldn't figure out what they were and I went back and I found like two or three examples of the same rocket and they were all linked to alleged chemical attacks. They've basically just gone under the radar and no one, there wasn't really much of information about that so I became like quite obsessed with figuring out exactly what these munitions were and I was asking all the people in the munition identifying community and they had no idea what they were and I' like, literally you know bolt by bolt I was examining this thing I could establish that the rocket motor had been taken from a 120 20, 22 millimeter grad rocket. you could tell by like the, the width of it the configuration of the tail fins. There are people on the ground who were seeing my blog post about it and they started sending me pictures of one of the rockets they found with measurements. So we actually got the exact measurements of these rockets. And I doubt even the Western intelligence communities had those at those points. So I was sharing all this stuff on the website and very quickly I became like the only source producing like that kind of reliable visual evidence and kind of piecing it together and saying, look, we've got this video here that shows these rockets being launched, this earlier video. Here's all the measurements. And then I worked with Human Rights Watch on their report on the chemical attack. And they had someone kind of turn that into a 3D model so we could actually get a sense of how much chemical agent it could hold. And you know, even like, how does it function? Where's the fuse? There was like um on the back of the... Um, so you have like a barrel on the front that contains the sarin and the rocket goes into that. But there were these two ports and I was trying to figure out what they were. And one of them was like a screw port and one of them was... Um, we think it's some form of fusing. It's still a bit of a mystery, but it's this black rod that stuck out the back of the um, warhead. But all of that was stuff I just obsessed over for weeks and months. So I basically became, you know, if you wanted to know what was happening with that attack, it was kind of, I became the person. And then, you know, the UN report came out that offered some more details. It confirmed a lot of what I had been saying, but it also still left a lot of questions unanswered. And, Many of those questions were answered in future reports by the OPCW looking at the chemical agents used in other sound attacks. But, yeah, I mean, that's really where, you know, I also first encountered the really strong resistance coming from the counterfactual community around chemical weapons attacks and, you know, seeing how that was kind of always developing in parallel to the work that I had been doing over the past year and a half and how they became really a tool of kind of rushing disinformation around the topic as well.
0: You know, it was certainly an ecosystem that developed. I mean, what's interesting is we assume the open source work you were doing was probably occurring, was certainly would have been occurring, but parallel to intelligence work that had been happening before, because this has been on, you know, gems in the US and the West long before August, 2013. But the difference was, of course, that you were doing this in the open and you were sharing all your sources and the vast majority were open source videos and other information. And so in a way as well, it was interesting because your work and of course, other discussions tended to happen a significant time before official statements would come out. And certainly back in 2013, it wasn't clear to me that there was any evidence that there was a real connection made between what the intelligence community were deciding to produce and publish and this evolving information ecosystem. Often talks about the pace of politics and the pace of information, but this was a really good example of if you were following social media, you you felt six months or so ahead of what the
1: official position would eventually be. It was maddening as well because I I would watch uh, I watched like the the debate in the UK Parliament around the attacks and it was clear they were just repeating what their favorite Sunday columnists had been saying about what had happened. And it's like, I could see all this data, all this information and it being checked, verified, you know, it was cross-referenced against all this other stuff. And they were completely ignorant for that. They probably didn't even know it existed. And I found that very frustrating because the debate they were having on something that was a very important issue was just I mean, really empty and worthless and just not worth the time that they were spending on it. They weren't really actually discussing the facts and the evidence. So just discussing whatever they had read in the mail on Sunday, really. But
0: it's it's funny. So that, that frustration I, I shared, in part, I think I was concerned that people would talk about the idea that Parliament voted to get strikes for a specific reason. Either they didn't believe the attack happened or they didn't get were that serious. So I was really interested to see the types of justification that different MPs gave to their positions to basically emphasize the fact that their rationales and motivations in relation to the chemical weapon issue was much more deep-seated than the chemical weapon issue specifically and the facts Mm. on the ground. And in that, what was interesting is, as you say, people were arguing to wait until we understood what had happened. They were arguing for multinationalism as a response. But substantively, particularly once you got past the first hour of discussion, it was just re- people restating their general positions on what war is, what the limits of war should be, what the international response should be, the just democratic society and those types of things. And it certainly struck me that, as you say, parliamentarians at that point, and understandably, many of them did not have an understanding of the substantive aspects at all. And you, you perhaps it wouldn't expect, it'd be unfair to expect them to have that. But certainly, I think if a comparable incident was to happen today, you'd expect a more sophisticated engagement, particularly with questions around the history of chemical weapons and the known possession of Syria and those types of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think, you know, because of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the caution among the politicians and the public, that also created a situation, not only where there was inaction, but also allowed various communities to kind of you know, say, oh, this is just a repeat of what happened in Iraq in 2003. It's all false claims about chemical weapons. They want to steal Syria's oil. And, you know, I kind of have a theory around um, disinformation and the communities you spread it, that a lot of this comes down to what I like to call traumatic moral injury, where they've had an experience in their lives around a certain topic, but it's built this deep distrust in the government and the media. And the invasion of Iraq in 2003 is a really big part of that. And, you know, when we talk about disinformation, often... It's framed around uh, what is Russia doing to us. But I think Tony Blair had a lot more to do with people believing in conspiracy theories than President Putin does because of the actions he took in 2003 around the invasion of Iraq. And you see this all the time with Syria, the way the communities who you know deny chemical weapon attacks use that as a touchstone moment saying, this happened in 2003, you can't trust the government, you can't trust the media, um, and this is just a repeat of that. And yeah, and that's something I've had to deal with on a whole range of topics. And fortunately, now there is more ways, as you were saying, to make the decision makers informed with factual evidence. And we've seen that in particular being effective around the invasion of Ukraine in 2022 and the way in which the US government shared what they understood was happening without actually providing the direct sources and causing any issues with that kind of classified intelligence process. But then through the open source material that could also be discovered and observed. So you have that kind of layer of verification on top of what was being put out by the US and Western states at that time.
0: I think that's right. I mean, for me as well, getting evidence out there and trying to cut through parochial positions, at least at the very least should, doesn't always, should raise the bar for discussion and should at least marginalize certain perspective is clearly ridiculous from central discourse, but it is complicated. And of course, as you know, alluded to, the, co- the motivations for why individuals engage in these debates and why media personalities engage in these debates, as well as people who are working on a, you know, maybe paid by the government to work on these debates. It's very, very different. I mean, one thing that struck me is it's very, it was very easy, particularly in the binary setup between around Syria to kind of go, well, you know, the opposition we have you on, are uh, idiots or are insincere in their views. But it struck me that many people on, the, on both sides of the debates appeared to be motivated by a sense of moral right, whether that was faith in evidence or faith in a specific type of action, which made it a very complicated environment to understand. It also made it incredibly difficult for different intelligence groups who may have had... A tendency towards certain meanings and this is open source people to collaborate and one thing that you know i think will become we'll probably touch upon later on is the fact you do have groups of people that seem to do interesting on one hand seems to do very interesting empirical work on the other hand this seems to have become bound to a very specific outlook and it prevents i think if you were taking the view that evidence and data were the most important things it prevents collaboration and it, it's a real shame but um
1: yeah. I mean, really, that 2013 event was a huge motivator for me with regards to you know how important I saw open source evidence being in understanding what was happening in the world, because I'd seen what happens when that's completely ignored. It's not even part of the consideration of the debate around what's happening yet. There's so much of that. And especially with the August 21st sound attacks, there was hundreds of videos of the attacks, details of the munitions used. You had the uh, report from the OPCW that Confirmed a lot of things, you know, like the use of hexamine as an acid scavenger that could be a big topic of debate, for example. But unless you're willing to, like, really look at the details and examine, like, every tiny point and question everything, you just aren't going to get that nuance. And instead, it all ends up being about, you know, your favorite newspaper columnist or whatever kind of conspiracy theorist has managed to get your ear. And I kind of really wanted to educate people about the use of open source investigation, the value of it and how to do it themselves so they could check this stuff for themselves. And that's why when I launched BallyingCat, you know, I wanted that space for guides and case studies and to explain how people could do it themselves because I saw it was hugely valuable. And as, you know, over the past decades since BallyingCat's been launched, we've trained thousands of people with open source investigation in all kinds of organizations. The reason you see so many news organizations now doing open source investigation is because we trained them to do that. So this was all very much part of a strategy that emerged from that. Of, we need more people doing this because there's very, very valuable information out there. And teaching those skills to as many people as possible, not just journalists or activists, but everyone. So there's that baseline knowledge a bit, I feel this' is something that's extremely important. And I think time and time again, with different conflicts and situations, that importance has been proven.
0: As you mentioned in the earlier discussions of August 21st you started to get a team of people working around you, often formally, off, unpaid, and sort of around 2013 onwards, sort of bellyncap organisation starts to cement a little bit. So could you tell a little bit about how, from sort of 2013, on an audience, you started to try to solidify that research community and secure the resources that would allow you to spend the time. And also, I mean, it, it was noted in, the, in your book, it wasn't vast amounts of money you were needing for a lot of the good work you were doing. But at the same time, you did need it from somewhere. So maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So in um, 2013, after I published the piece about the arms being smuggled to Syria, um, I, I had basically come to the end of a temporary job I'd been doing. Um, I, I had finished my work with the asylum seekers. I'd been working at a, a lingerie manufacturing company, filling in Excellent. orders um, for like all these. Lo- I just. Um, a uh, prototype lingerie they were making. I had to fill in all these forms, send it off, and then sort we'll get a delivery somewhere. But I found that very unsatisfying, because on- Why, why? I'm why? Home, <laughs> that sounds like a really rewarding job. Well, I mean, on <laughs> one side you'd be like kind of filling all this underwear, and on the other side, and this is when my daughter was having having trouble sleeping, so I was getting sleepless nights, so I was living yeah. off red. And then I'd go home and I'd be like exposing international smuggling networks in the New York <laughs> Times, but not getting any money for doing that. <laughs> and that kind of was very frustrating for me. But I, I I was thinking, how can I turn this into an actual job? And I had been I had an interview with a um, kind of private intelligence company who uh, they did business intelligence for oil companies and stuff like that. And they interviewed me and um, they were very happy. They were very keen to have me on board. They were fans of the Brown Moses blog. And they said, you know, we'd love to have you join us, but you'd have to quit your blogging. And I... Made the decision that it was a far better idea to crowdfund, which was looking back on it probably based stupid, because literally the my mortgage wasn't going to get paid if the cheque hadn't cleared like the day it did, and it was like all very much up to the wire. And I was like all the way into my overdraft. I it's like really uh, c- close to the wire, but I did a Kickstarter campaign that raised about six thousand pounds, and that allowed me to keep going for a bit. A lot of consultancy work of Human Rights Watch collecting all the videos of cluster munitions from Syria, for example. I I collected like 600 videos of cluster munitions from Syria and put them on a big spreadsheet and said what they were. And that paid a a few hundred quid here. All those kind of little data gathering tasks I kind of made a bit of money from. But yeah, and then I spent the next year and a half finishing kind of the Brown Moses blog off in a sense, because that's really with the August 21st sound attacks and kind of my um disagreements with CR C for example, that rose my profile. Um, at the same time, I was getting to know more and more experts in different areas. They were emailing me. I was emailing them and asking them questions. And that then allowed me to draw on that network, you know, when there were chemical attacks. And then I, I just at the start of 2014 I thought, I I want to take this to the next level. My BlogSpot site looks terrible. I had an agreement that someone would pay like $100,000 for like 20% ownership of Bellingcat, whatever that would be, because I barely had an idea of what Bellingcat was, yeah. but a bit more of my blog. And then like four weeks before I was about to launch Bellingcat in July, that deal collapsed because Google had changed the way its advertising worked and the search engine worked, and this company had lost a big amount of income overnight. So I had no money. I had a website that was about to launch, and it was I was like... Broke, so I um, did a Kickstarter campaign, and thank God that was successful. But yeah. that was a really close to the wire moment for me. But that's when MH17 happened, and that was massive catalyst for banning cat and everything that happened around that.
0: Of course, psychologically, I've always been interested in this one: is, is the fact that, as you mentioned at the top of the show, like you know, people like Seymour Hirsch were, in some respects, kind of intellectual heroes. They were people that you'd read; these investigative journalists. I guess guests of the old guard that you'd read and were very impressed by the sort of what they're doing indeed uh samuel hirsch uh, wrote a book on chemical biological weapons decades and decades ago which i read years ago when i was starting out in the field and it was a very powerful book and so at this time as well where you were struggling to find your place and to find that niche and be sustained on that ecosystem you were also bashing heads with individuals <laughs> that in some respects, you—I guess—you almost were following. So that must have been quite. Did you ever have doubts about the direction you were going, or or if you were too far out on the limb, and those sorts of
1: things? Oh yeah, continually. I mean, it's never. I, I mean, I never publish stuff, and I think I know everything. I mean, even when I was like doing the early days of my blog, it was like I'm just trying to find stuff that's relevant through the open source material. And then share that with my understanding of what it shows based on as best research I can do. Right? I always understood that was just part of the picture. And I never expected to know every single thing. But bashing heads with the likes of Seymour Hush, I mean, looking at the way he was writing and what he was saying and then comparing that to that actual video and photographic evidence, I was appalled. Because the version of events he was describing was not reflected by the reality that I was seeing. And it seemed to be drawing off stuff that seemed to to be completely made up. It drawed off conspiracy theories. It it felt like someone someone was telling him stuff and that was, there was a bias there somewhere. And then if you saw his later reporting on the later chemical attacks, which had ridiculous stories around them, like absolutely just, you know, it was like kind of rushing Tom Clancy style kind of fan fiction about chemical weapons and that quality of work. It just made you realize that, you know, he may have been great 20, 30 years ago, but now he's just repeating garbage that he's being fed by someone. I and mean, it was disappointing in many ways. But it also, I kind of, I, I, when I read The Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, I used to read a lot of Noam Chomsky, like I was going through all these books. But I kind of got to the point where I was like, you know, he's always just talking about one side and what they do. And he doesn't seem to ever be willing to apply that model to anyone but the people he doesn't like. So why don't we apply all these models to everyone and see what happens? And you know, I, I kind of appreciate that. I mean, I mean manufacturing, you can say it's by no means a perfect piece of work, but it does kind of make you think about information and stuff like that. But I just found it frustrating that the thinking of those people often had such a focus on the US and the US action. Of course,
0: it's entirely understandable in a way. I like mean, you say it's no, it's not on the moralist version at all. It's this idea that you know the the skills. And, and, and sadly, it would be the same for everyone, right? So <laughs> maybe in 30 years, somebody doing open source will be having the same conversation about their frustrations with the previous generation mm-hmm. of, of of people who work, or work on, on topics. And in part, I think, as you say, in the book, it comes out as well, this idea that a lot of this seems to be the working habits of researchers in certain times on certain topics are very, very helpful, but often have blind spots. Be that in terms of motivation, understanding the broader ecosystem, knowledge ecosystem, but also in terms of the availability of empirical materials. And I think, as you mentioned in regards to Seymour Hirsch, in part, one of the frustrations I've often had is it's very clear to me that very often the the line adopted in official statements by Russia on certain things may often be reflected in critical works by uh, people of the west it's almost as if they take a view from nowhere without remembering that they're part of a binary disinformation campaign
1: mm.
0: a, a, a narrative war not just the case as in it's not enough to say the u.s lies like that is true <laughs> yeah but but that's not enough to really do the good investigative work because you have to understand that other actors are lying, and there's a structure to there's a, a broader structure and gaming going on at the more kind of bigger narrative level.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the I always say, as they've been again going back to this kind of traumatic moral injury. It causes them to see the world through a specific lens, where America is always the bad guy, that they're always lying, that. But... You know, there's plenty of evidence to support it going back years and years. how yeah, yeah, I I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it's very easy to surround yourself with a whole kind of ecosystem of information that reinforces those ideas. And then, as we have this kind of online generation where we have you know people who are able to use open sources to build more kind of theories and ideas, what what why I start observing it a lot of this is, What they're trying to do is not build a consistent narrative based off a series of facts. They're just trying to pick holes in the narratives they think is part of kind of Western kind of biases and stuff like that. And I saw this with chemical weapons attacks. I've seen it with MH17, for example. Really anything. And this isn't just something that impacts anti-US, anti-West, in quotes, anti-imperialist community. But it's something that can be applied to a whole range of different communities. This way of seeing the world where these traditional sources of, of authority, the traditional gatekeepers of information cannot be trusted. But right. that means in a kind of binary way that the opposite must be true and that you should um, always be on the other side of that. I also say out of the arms of one and into another. That's also a big problem.
0: Yeah, we have. And or people have. And then also as well, it's again it's it's also more complicated that the sense people are complicated things and it strikes me as well that uh, certain work that has systematically challenged Western views, but not looked at, become an alternative perspective and put out by other actors. That motivation seems to come from the fact, well, I'm in the West. I'm in a democracy. My job is to challenge powerful voices in my back garden. So it's not always as clear cut as kind of being anti-West, I think. Sometimes it's, as a, you, you, I imagine you get people who feel very patriotic in some respects but still feel very happy to spend their time holding their government to account and keeping them honest. And so it is very, co- that ecosystem is complicated. And of course that all, that nuance gets lost. I mean, I, mean, I don't have to tell you, I mean, it like, was yeah. like that, that very quickly any that does not survive contact with the internet like that. Mm. It dissolves very quickly into, and what frustrates me is often when you get that polarization of debate, it becomes completely inescapable and it becomes very hard to construct or to integrate insights from different perspectives. And that is frustrating. And it also channels attention often onto issues which are less important, I think, very often from a kind of more objective perspective. Um, so, the, the Scripple's cat, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, before we get on to the Scripple incident, um, There was further work you did in relation, you you and your team did, sorry, in relation to Syria, particularly around things like chlorine use and also later allegations and and proven allegations of of, of sarin use. So why don't you talk a little bit about how that work developed. I know this kind of jumps over some of the MH17, well, it does jump over some of the MH17 work you did, which was incredibly important. But yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your continued involvement in Syria post august 21st
1: yeah so after um 2013 there was a pause in chemical weapon use but then there started being this kind of slow ramping up again of chemical weapon use this time chlorine and that i was observing through i continued to track these barrel bombs and seeing how they evolve but then they moved on to just sticking chlorine cylinders inside them and eventually the chlorine cylinder was just in a metal cage which fits on yep. the something to blow the end off effectively So um, there was this evolution through its use, and you could see it then being used in a very widespread fashion. But because it was always quite quite low level, you know, low number of casualties, usually no deaths, no one really took any notice of it. The media didn't take notice of it. I mean, there was very little good reporting on the use of chlorine. It only ever really broke through when there was a large casualty incident. So it meant that kind of the Syrian government had found just the right level of chemical weapon use to keep getting away with it, to stop there being an international reaction, even though they were part of the OPCW and were supposed to have given up their chemical weapons program. And then they kind of always used the cover of that saying, oh, you know, the OPCW says we've destroyed our chemical weapons to get away with using chlorine. And, yeah, um, yeah we, we tracked this through the Khan Kuhn attack, you know, sound being used again. There's a lot of debate and discussion about that one. But it is, you know, the, the and discussion is about the stuff that gets into the media. They don't talk about the kind of other sound attacks that occurred a couple of weeks earlier yeah. nearby because that didn't get into the newspapers. That wasn't on TV. That wasn't something that was being discussed on Twitter that they could get in little Twitter fights about. And it, it's very much reflective on how to kind of counter uh factual a kind of conspiracy community around them, chemical weapons to engage with information they aren't interested in the use of chemical weapons they're interested in fighting against what they see is the government's attempts to use chemical weapons for whatever evil thing it wants to be doing so we aren't in the same debate with them we're trying to look at you know that constant use of chemical weapons they're analyzing the evidence breaking it down bit by bit trying to figure out the connection all that. They're just looking for whatever holes they think they can pick in, you know, the mainstream media narratives rather than actually saying, okay, what's actually happening here.
0: And of course, I mean, what was interesting at that point, uh, sadly, I think the use this sort of sub threshold use was so common, or at these allegations of use was so common that work was actually moving to patterns of use as well. So some of the reports we started seeing coming out weren't just about individual cases, they were about demonstrating, and trying to communicate this idea that while the debate in public emerged about individual cases, it was the pattern of use that was just as compelling demonstrate, you know, how commonly this was happening. And I think another interesting dimension of the information environment as well was, I think because of the polarization, strangely, certain groups seem to become more disconnected from the expert communities, particularly those who had positions that were unfavorable or they had stances which were primarily to challenge excellent authority and it meant that you increasingly had very elementary mistakes being made in certain commentaries which for me reflected that this there wasn't this quiet consultation with people that knew about these things going on behind the scenes so much because almost you were getting a kind of guesserization of some groups of people who were consistently trying to challenge certain perspectives that, Well it's, you,
1: it's, it's like well, like the um, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPs, they were a community that I think very much fed a lot of the debate in the kind of older generation, the kind of Seymour Hirsch, Noam Chomsky kind of generation, you know, the Ted Postles who don't have to go into, you know, those, that kind of generation. And then there was a dynamic between them and online, I guess you could call it tanky kind of generation and, you know, the, those kind of people. And It's almost as if the older generation doesn't understand the dynamics that's affecting the younger generation or the kind of online generation. So they see them as kind of, you know, fellow travelers, but actually they exist in a different information environment that fuels conspiracy theorists. And I think a lot of that older generation got drawn into that because they have fundamentally that same fundamental distrust of the US. And therefore, it's very easy for them to think, you know, oh, we're pointing in the same direction in this issue. And that's how I think it kind of started coming together. And then on top of that, you had kind of Russia using those kind of voices as a way to uh, promote the confusion they wanted to create around these chemical weapons attacks.
0: I guess it's, it's interesting to know as well. I mean, it's understandable if you're a state like Russia, if you're in a certain position, you lie. That's what you would do. In that situation to protect our allies it's not mm. a moral judgment it's, it's it would be a very prudent thing to do and so it's interesting for me that that gets lost you know there's a sense check that you know what's the so it's always this what's the incentive for the west to lie and it probably is incentive if you forget there's also incentives that other states to lie at other states where you don't have open media it's often easier to lie as well uh, discussions i guess and of course an instructive case which we won't go into Too much detail here. It's very difficult to do it. Justice, of course, was uh, responses to the Duma, and of course, the escalation of the challenge of technical competence, uh, which we saw in relation to report to the the Duma attack. Um, And for me, that was a real culmination of and the solidification of this argument, which moved beyond debating the case, uh, but became. And even more focused on this issue of trust and trusting international organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll put up a, a link to some commentary on that in the show notes. So, so I live not too far from Salisbury. I imagine, as you and, and your colleagues were, uh, as this story started to emerge, basically I checked out of life for about a week and a half initially, <laughs> just and to move on to talking about. The script on incident because that was the one where you were very well known as an organization, um, uh, by that point, and in certain circles, but over the coming months, you would really become a household name in the sense of I'd have neighbors over the fence mentioning you without me to, you know, <laughs> coming up, and I'd be like, Oh, yeah, I think I've had it a good work." So, let's talk a little bit about the script on incident.
1: Yesterday afternoon, passers-by noticed two people, apparently unconscious, on a bench in Salisbury. The area was investigated by people in protective suits as suspicions built that the two victims had been poisoned. They were in Salisbury Hospital tonight, described as critically ill. Well, yeah, I mean, with the script poisonings when it first occurred we didn't have any kind of leads or clues or anything like that it really what happened is when the uk put out the information about the suspects sometime later there were a couple of things that happened there one was that quite soon after that was published there was a russian news outlet who got the flight manifest for the plane they were on, and that's where it showed their passport numbers were very close to each other chris ogrozev who was volunteering with Baltic at the time he had written various articles his kind of interest is in the Russian intelligence services and he said that you know I I didn't kind of use these online brokers to buy kind of their passport registration document and the things we did this thinking that there's no way enough that they're going to have you know they're kind of you know their spy stamped on the thing but when we got the documents that was always literally the case there was the phone number of the Russian Ministry of Defense there was a stamp on it saying that you know if you get if you get this phone this number, there's was loads of stuff missing that should have been there. It was the same for both the documents we got, and it was like very obvious at that point that there was something yeah. dodgy going on. Plus, the um passport numbers were very close to another passport number that was used by a GRU agent who'd been arrested during an attempted coup in Montenegro a few years earlier.
0: Just to clarify, at this point, what you had in the, from the public domain was basically there is I think it was, was it was CCTV images that they found of the suspects. Uh, I think it was them at a station and then later images of them walking around would appear, obviously, you know, interested in going on the touristical aspects of suburban uh, Salisbury. Then you also had the assumed names, which we, I guess, may have come from, from where they flew in, they got their names, but that's all you have. You have two photos and two Mickey Mouse type names. And then that led to you starting. But luckily, you'd already had, as you said, with the patronyms and stuff, you'd already had some experience with finding this type of character before. And so you had a sense of types of information that they may have maintained in their new personas. Is that right?
1: Yeah, because the guy who was arrested in Montenegro actually had two ID documents on them. And there were shared characteristics between them, like the first name, the place of birth, and the date of birth. Chris, at that point as well, had been collecting a lot of kind of leaked Russian databases, and they're available through all kinds of sources. Some are like on um, torrents, some are just like I read a Financial Times article from about 14 years ago, where there's like a market in Russia that was like Moscow selling DVDs with government databases, burnt onto them and stuff like that. So this kind of data market existed even pre-internet. And Chris had just been collecting a lot of this data over the years. And that data market, in uh, part of that was stuff
0: which was been sold not necessarily for criminal purposes, sometimes it seemed to be for business purposes where people were wanting to get hold, wanting people's information, but it also to do with organized crime as well. And basically I think Babushka was the code name, one of the individuals that that he had interacted with. It was often disgruntled individuals who had access to these things working somewhere in a dowdy office who would, for a few hundred dollars provide information as well that was the 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 kind of threshold for you because before you were utilizing stuff that was already out there that was findable and it became increasingly clear that you could actually approach individuals to also provide you with these data sets is that right
1: yeah and it was something we discussed a lot internally because you know we focus on open source evidence the thing with this information it wasn't hard for anyone to get if you basically knew the right kind of websites to go to, you could get this stuff quite easily. Um, in fact, w- when we did our reporting on on the walls, there were Russian news organizations who brought similar data and mm-hmm. confirmed our findings kind of independently of what we were doing. So yeah. it wasn't traditional open source information, but it was, the level of corruption is so much in Russia yeah. that it makes certain things nearly open source, I would say. And once we kind of had that first clue, we just... Really, all our investigations, you know, through Navani and onwards, are just unpicking um, the same threads. So, you know, we looked into these two guys. We found uh, similar people with, you know, the same first name, place of birth, and so on and so forth. In one case, that works really well. Before one of the suspects, we were able to find his real identity. He's like a, a Russian medical doctor from the military academy. The other guy actually didn't use that same pattern. But we did a profile of what we thought that kind of person would be, roughly the age, which GRU training academy he would have gone to. We looked into all of them. One thing we realized is that one of the guys had got a Hero of Russia award, and the other guy in his kind of school he was training at to you know, be a spy, there were lots of people who'd got the Hero of Russia awards. They listed a bunch of them, but only some of them were actually publicly available. So we looked at the ones that were publicly available, and it was the guy. So then we had the two suspects' names, and from them we could really keep building. We found the connection to another poisoning of a meeting forever an arms dealer. That's been a kind of ongoing thing. We discovered later that his um, arms depot had exploded in the Czech Republic, and it was actually um, the two Scripple guys who were the ones who visited it last, using fake identity documents. And we discovered their connections to this unit 29155, which is a kind of GRU Kind of European operations unit, and they've been involved with things like blowing up arms depots, various assassination attempts, and God knows what else. I mean, we've got loads of, we were able to get like their travel data so we could see where they've been flying to all these fake identity documents and it's all over Europe. There's tons of information that we discovered about them, but it was all just using these Russian black market sources that were pretty easy to access.
0: And of course, you know, we, we have in the UK this year, we have Dawn Surgis Inquiry, and um, I'm assuming certain additional bits of information about these individuals will come out as part of that. So speaking about the the two sports supplement salesmen, I remember from the book having a moment of chuckling in a sense, because uh, you were talking about how part of the reason that you really stepped up the type of work you were doing and were considering using the purchasing information uh, was the uh, RT interview. Um, which yeah, I mean, I remember having the same sensation of just absolute bewilderment. I, I think just before they came on, I almost had this suspicion because there'd been some misidentification of the name initially. Uh, I wasn't sure if they would bring on somebody who happened to share the name with those that have been accused like a plumber mm-hmm. or something, um, but as it happened, no, no, they brought on the two GRU agents and gave them. I think it would be fair to say a very public dressing down, even though the actual framing of the interview was, come on, guys, give us your side of the story. They should definitely worn the T-shirts of their company. That would have really added a level of absurdity to it. We are those who were shown to you in the pictures, Ruslan Bashirov and Alexander Petrov.
2: Are those your real names?
0: Yes, they are our real names.
2: Even now when you're talking about it, to tell the truth, you look very nervous. On the CCTV footage from London, you walk on those now famous coats and sneakers in Salisbury. Are these people you?
1: Yeah, that's us.
2: What were you doing there?
1: Mm-hmm. Our friends had been suggesting for a long time that we visit this wonderful town.
0: There's the famous Salisbury Cathedral, famous not only in Europe, but in the whole world. It's famous for its 123-metre spire. It's famous for its clock, the one of the first ever created in the world that's still working.
2: Do you work for the GRU? And you? Me? No. And you?
0: And I don't either. Where do you work? You're adults, who need to make a living.
2: If we tell you about our business, people we work with will be affected. Tell anything so that we believe you. Everyone has questions. What do you do?
0: To cut a long story short, we're in the fitness industry. Can you remember how you felt
1: watching that performance? Well, at that point, we'd already received the data that indicated to us that these were not the people they claimed to be. So we were kind of watching this a great deal of amusement because we were, as we were watching it, we were also writing the call that was about to kind of blow all the claims in the interview out of the water. So, yeah, that was very, had a very enjoyable process, I would say. I mean, you've got to think these are two guys who have been used in multiple foreign operations. They've blown up wow. arms depot. I mean, these are not just back office staff. And effectively, it meant those two people could lo- no longer operate as spies for Russia. They had to you know, get desk jobs back in Russia. I think that worked, that worked quite well for them, actually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's from that. I mean, really, like, our whole process through this investigation, we, we kind of went from that to the Emilian Gefrev case. From that, it was possible, uh, you know, Chriso established a whole network of spies operating around that. Some of those were linked to the scruple poisoning, one of them had been finding up a scientist in Russia who was working for the Signal Institute, which at the, I, we found very funny that officially they work on sp- sports supplements, but they actually work on developing Russia's secret nerve agent program. And so we had that and, you know, we, we had the phone records. I, it was quite funny looking for phone records because usually only have like the top, like three people would be the wife, the girlfriend, the boss. And that would be like the top three most frequent calls. And we'd identify all the networks and, we just have this growing body of evidence and data. And then we have the navali poisoning. And there, I mean, again, we didn't have pictures of the assassins or anything, but Christo checked the phone records of the Russian chemical weapons scientists working in the Signal Institute who was connected to the Schrippel case. And he'd been talking to FSB officers. And Christo dug into that and discovered this whole network. And I should say, when we say they're talking to FSB officers, what would happen is... We'd get, like, the phone records. You know, Christo would use his money to buy it from some broker. would get, like, two years of phone records. And then we'd go through the phone records using things like that. You have these apps on, like, Telegram on, in Russia where you can just send a bit Bitcoin and a phone number, and it tells you who it belongs to. And it's because you have <laughs> these share you have these contact apps that have, like, People will get a phone number from, like, a FSB officer and put Sergey FSB as the ID. <laughs> but what they don't seem to realize is that's essentially, like, a centralized database that if you query, or if even you put the number in, in the same app on your phone, it'll bring up, you know, Sergey FSB as the result. So it made it really, I mean, we were going on, like, um, uh, Skype, for example, and taking phone numbers, and it would pop up with, the, you know, the person's profile, and um, you'd, we'd work from there. So, yeah, it was just identifying all the numbers and then figuring out, oh, there's this network connected. And then it's just following all the leads and unpicking it as much as you can. And that led us to the poisoning of Navani and some more revelations. Like what one of the most important things we found is now encapsulation as a way to delay the effect yeah. of shock That's something that was developed in the Signal Institute. And that's why we have all these cases where People are exposed to the poison, but it's not until hours later they're actually feeling the impact of it. That delay was something the conspiracy theorists really latched onto, saying, "Oh, Novachok kills you instantly." But there is an explanation for that, and that's something we discovered from this.
0: And that, of course, in part involved you going through looking at things like PhD theses from this institute and um looking at some of the projects they've been involved in as well, which were very eye-opening. And if you have an interest in this, go and look at the chapter in, in your book, which is excellent and will merit further digging by people i'm sure of course the other scoop which you i think it was almost in the side of the project was do with passport numbers uh where you basically realize that uh, passport these these uh dodgy passports or dancing mm-hmm. documents when they were identified to F- fsb officers uh inexplicably and completely ridiculously seemed to have been given in sequence from the body which meant that you identified a load of passport numbers for individuals which basically implemented
1: them as being how do you well I, I kind of wonder what the kind of various Western security services then did with that information? Because it was very obvious that there was quite a large sequence of passport numbers that were being used for fake identities. So if I was any intelligence worth service worth my soul, I'd be getting the which names are behind that and starting to identify all of them through kind of passport services. It's like another thing we did where, where there was a um a group who tried to hack the opcw's wi-fi and they got arrested oh, yes, yeah. stamp and there we had one where the guy had registered his private car to the gru headquarters he was working at and then when we searched the database of car registrations for st petersburg was based, there was 305 other cars registered to that same address and that was just a big list of people working on hacking and stuff on behalf of the gru so I think what we were finding would have been very, very disruptive to those networks and probably created a lot of problems for how they operate and how they organize. Of course, we,
0: in the UK, uh, we then had the Amesbury incident. Um, and I think the work of Bellingcat, I think, really helped lift the discussion uh, around these issues after to this point. So I guess something I'd like to talk about with you would now be, if I was say, you know, a sort of a, uh, aspiring students in this area, particularly those interested in things like chemical warfare and chemical weapons, what type of techniques and software would you say would be part of the arsenal that you would kind of get even to get people to familiarise themselves with?
1: I, I mean, there's not, not really a need to have a specific kind of software. I mean, the tools that are available and, you know, a lot of it is just being able to organise yourself around the topic. It's... um. I mean when it came to camel attacks that occurred in Syria you knew there would be information coming through certain social media channels about what was happening that there was limited access to the ground if you were fortunate enough to have um, contacts on the ground who could send you a bit of additional information like I sometimes was, was able to get that's useful um a lot of it is more about the process you go through to analyze this kind of stuff it you know you always start with kind of geolocating imagery confirming exactly where something was filmed or photographed um sometimes that can be like you know the the impact side figuring out exactly you know where it is the configuration of the crater that might give some idea about you know where it came from examining the type of munition that's used um you and know that, i mean sorry the, the munition
0: type uh one's interesting because like in any area you have nerdy communities who <clears throat> for whatever reason collect things i think you mentioned in one of the earlier cases it was dash camp i think it was, this was uh uh Ukraine, but it was a community of people who put up dash cam footage for some reason. Mm. And that became a really valuable resource. And likewise with munitions, you have whole communities of people who build open archives, cataloguing different types of munition and historical types. And of course, that can become a really useful resource once you get your head around it. Um, this information is often there, but it's often connecting these different types of information, isn't it? It's part of uh, building pick a bigger picture.
1: Yeah, I think I think Zamster um, has just released a new platform that is a kind of weapons a cataloging uh, platform. Um, uh, you've got like Cat UXO, which was a site that I used to use quite a bit. Sometimes it's just searching on Twitter and seeing the discussions that are already happening around these topics because you know Twitter was a very fertile place for people to discuss these things, I and mean, it's been kind of ruined by Elon Musk just making a terrible website now. But um, that's where a lot of the kind of open source community organised. I, I think, you know, when you kind of, a, if you want to look into chemical weapons, I mean, the amounts of stuff that I've published on chemical weapons are by myself and the work of GPPI on yeah. chemical weapon use. That's a good place to start. Um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to put tomorrow, together a, um, a, a podcast series actually on chemical weapons. GPPI did a very good one. I've been speaking Oh to yes, some, I, I, I listened to that one, it was great. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've been talking to some of the survivors of these attacks and looking at a way that we can kind of do something that... that talks about their experiences because they often don't have a voice in this and it's, it's been yeah. quite frustrating to see that their you know the survivors are pushed out of the debate for a number of reasons some of them can't speak publicly because of the risk it presents to their families others don't want to engage because what happens is they talk about their experiences in public and then you get some kind of conspiracy theorists saying oh what about this very specific thing about this you know that yeah. they shouldn't really have to know about that they shouldn't be involved in that kind of debate because you know, it's not for yeah. to them to know every like pixel in every photograph from the chemical attack that killed their family. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of been um, something I've kind of wanted to explore. A lot of it though is just kind of um, I would tell people to focus on one thing and just trying to figure out as much as you can about say one incident, and it doesn't yeah. have to be like a huge world changing incident. It's just for your own kind of work, your own research, for memorizing yourself with the topic. Because I spend every day kind of looking at videos looking for something new then learning what that new thing was you know often bombs fragments of bombs and then you know go through the process of writing that up and that is how you kind of learn how to do do it and still I, I there's a hell of a lot more resources about learning how to go for source investigation when i started so i'd recommend people you know it's on Cat. there's other sites that do it now just learn those skills but the basic skill you should always start with is geolocation because can't you locate a photograph then it has very little value as actual evidence
0: and of course archiving is the other one and i guess this in part relates to some of the work the betting cat has done in providing data to those kind of uh, looking at long-term justice those sorts of things because as we know you know information on the internet we assume is permanent it's not it disappears
1: Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of work over the last few years developing a process with the Global Legal Action Network that's specifically intended for legal accountability using open source evidence. Um, We we focus purely on the open source evidence. And the idea is that we do the full investigation using the open source evidence. We archive all the information we're finding. We use a platform called Hunchly that saves basically everything we're clicking on so we can track back to the moment we discovered something. We have a methodology written out that is designed to ensure that we're checking all possible answers to a question, not the, just the ones that reinforce what we believe is true. So yeah. it's very thorough. It's been tested in mock trials. We've worked with various international legal bodies to kind of view it and get their input on how to improve it. Um, it's a very, very robust system that we've got already, and we've been using that on the conflict in um, Ukraine. But a lot of the information, the, the ideas around it, are things that we learned from Syria from chemical weapon use and developed as ideas. Um, but I think there is going to be, and well, there already really is happening, a really sh- big shift in the international accountability community around the use of open source evidence. Um, when I started doing this, you know, 10 years ago, they were still very much set in the mindset set that you have to get the device, the media it was recorded on, put that in a kind of evidence bag, you know, seal it away until yeah. something happens yeah. 50 years in the future that is just not something that is feasible given the information environment that exists so you have to find other ways to verify that information and that's what we've been working on over the last few years
0: um and that data once it's there and catalogued and linked to things doesn't have to be linked to a specific perspective on what to be done or who to do it or who's done something and in the longer term does provide a better evidential base that otherwise wouldn't be there um so i think you know i think that's that's a good thing, and uh, I think it's, it, it emphasises the working of even quiet archive work in the background. If you're doing that, you know, listening to this show, it, it, it is important, uh, e- even if, especially if you're not even got, you know, you have a public profile in relation to it. The other uh, thing I wanted to talk to was perhaps something that might encourage. You talked about starting with a concrete case um, as a good way of refining skills and and learning how to do this, and um, one issue at the moment which i think is under looked at and there's lots of reasons for that and in part i think it's my bias is one of chemical weapons because i perhaps ascribe more importance to allegations of uh, the use of tear gas on the battlefield than people who don't uh, work with the history of the chemical warfare and, and broader prohibition is allegations of, of tear gassing uh, in ukraine which has been uh, for a couple of years we've seen allegations and that for me is an area that is ripe uh, for individuals or organizations to start really digging down and cataloguing. Um and I put some sources up on on this on the show. Um and I, I wonder a Bellingcat hasn't looked at the right control agent issue so far, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I think um, often those are quite a, a bit more difficult to document. I, we've, we've seen allegations of Turkey using it in um, northern Iraq against um, kind of Kurdish positions and Dublin positions. So it's certainly an issue that you know is important to Ukraine, but also other conflicts. I, I really think I always get the impression that the people actually enforcing this stuff just don't care enough to actually do anything about it even if it's being reported it's difficult to investigate often um i think in some sense i think it's similar to chlorine use that it's one of these things that you really need to be on the ground gathering evidence um i mean at least with syria giant yellow chlorine cylinders to kind of yeah. look at but with right control agents the munitions tend to be a lot small they're easy to miss they're not very well documented um and I think that's... I mean, we, we do have some videos of drones dropping what seems to be uh, riot control agents. Um, but I, I've just never seen any interests from the chemical weapon community about enforcing anything around this. It's it's always kind of like the... Uh, for the broader international community, it's the chlorine of uh, chemical weapons. They can just use it at a low enough level that there isn't enough action that's taken against it to stop its use in the future. Um, yeah. But I think... we we see what happens when these kind of permissive structures around chemical weapon use emerge because often it can lead to even more serious use of chemical weapons and that's what we saw in Syria.
0: Obviously, you know, states that are very eager to show violations also have a range of other considerations. Um, And so this issue is one that might suddenly explode into public knowledge. I think it's less likely in other issues because even though right control agents are prohibited on the battlefield um that the issue there's so many seems a bit more complicated in terms of legality even though it, it objectively it's, or it's legally it's illegal um it would be very easy to muddy the waters uh in particular you know we also some states may be uh less willing to do this at the moment you have what's happening in, in, in israel you have um riot control aging being used in crowd control situations and so it seems that this may be a seems a hiding to nowhere for some states who otherwise would be eager to demonstrate the violation. So perhaps it might be a couple of years before this issue really, perhaps quietly behind the scenes starts getting a significant kind of weight behind it.
1: Yeah. I, to be honest, I think that might even be a bit optimistic because I, <laughs> I, 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 suspect that this is one of those things that's just kind of just going to be allowed until something like genuinely terrible and unavoidable kind of happens that, just can't be ignored by uh, the world media or the kind of governments who are supposed to be making sure this stuff is enforced. But But um, yeah, I have my severe doubts around whether this kind of use is ever going to be something that's taken seriously.
0: A potential line would be neutralization uh, of, of uh, incapacitating agents rather than riot control agents, which tends to be much more much more dangerous. But of course, even then, because of the issues of attribution and those sorts of things, it's not a clear threshold moment um it'll be subject to various factors about availability when it happened and um, the fact when a lot of the political mood is there to make it stand on it and those sorts of things
1: well it's, it's kind of like you know is the opcw going to find a send a fact-finding machine out to uh, somewhere where this stuff is being used when you know there's many other kind of what i think would be considered more serious cases of chemical weapon use that yeah. don't get investigated i mean if you look at the scale of chemical weapon use and Syria and the fracturing of events that have been investigated, and how long it takes for those investigations to emerge. I mean, you look at two or three years after an event has happened for there to be a you know a final report from the OPCW on these things. By which point, no one really cares about doing anything about it because it happened almost three years ago, and they have nothing's been reported since, even when it has been reported since. But it's just this kind of delay, this gap, is where you know. States who use chemical weapons can just get away with doing it because there, I think mean, there is so much fear, I mean, especially since 2003, of kind of getting things wrong around chemical weapons and the trust distrust that will create that inaction is seen as always preferable to action. Um, and yeah, yes. I mean, it makes it very, very difficult for there to actually be accountability for this kind of thing as well. I mean, where's the accountability for chemical weapons attacks in Syria? I mean, there's been hundreds of them, thousands dead, many more injured, and this you know, Syria kind of got away with it. Boy. It's also this
0: uh, the risk as well. There's always a risk, I think, particularly in narrative war situations where decisions in relation to even a narrow niche issue, like, you know, ICA youths or RCA youths, potentially relate to strategic considerations about the broader narrative wars and those types of things as well, and, and become a, uh, they can perversely focusing on certain issues can actually give states a new sort of judo type leverage point to shift discourses and stuff so it's um yeah it's a complex one well Elliot that takes us up to the hour I could speak to you all day but I imagine you want to get back to doing some <laughs> sleuthing um once again thank you uh very much for taking the time to speak to me
2: that thanks for having uh, me on